Welcome to In Your Right Mind, a weekly discussion of behavioral health issues that affect our lives. We all have issues, so let's start talking. My name is Stephanie Wilder-Taylor. And I'm Dr. Tonmoy Sharma. We see tragic events on the news almost daily. Reports of school shootings, bombings, environmental disasters, and terrorist attacks. Although most people can hear about a tragedy and bounce back quickly without any problems, hearing about or being a victim of incidents of mass shootings and attacks and other traumatic events can make us feel unsafe and lead to ongoing feelings of danger. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD as it is known, is a serious psychological condition that can develop in people who witness or experience a harmful or life-threatening event. This evening, we'll be focusing on how PTSD can develop and change the brain, as well as some of the evidence-based treatments that are effective for treating traumatic stress. And to discuss this topic tonight, we have Dr. Roger Solomon, a psychologist and psychotherapist specializing in the areas of trauma and grief, who's on the senior faculty of the Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which is also called EMDR Institute. He provides basic and advanced EMDR training internationally and currently consults with the U.S. Senate and several law enforcement agencies. Very impressive. Hello, Dr. Solomon. Uh, Hello there. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Thank you for joining us this evening. Welcome. Dr. Solomon, let's start the discussion by talking about what happens in the brain in response to a traumatic experience. But let's kind of define post-traumatic stress disorder in the sense that what is it and how does it develop? And most people think of it as, you know, vets coming back from really difficult situations. But PTSD can develop. Well, there's in a, many of, levels to right. think about a traumatic right. incident. Right. And uh, so I would like to relate this in a way that's understandable, uh, understandable to the everyday person. Right. So we're talking about an event that is too much, that, that be, that's just beyond the capacity to cope. We're talking about situations where there's danger and powerlessness. So situations that overwhelm a person's sense of vulnerability and control. So we all know that we're vulnerable. We, we know we can, we can get hurt. We know we can die. But on a day-to-day basis, this isn't something that we worry about. But when we experience an incident, we're now emotionally, we're faced with the reality that, yes, we can die. A person is in a situation where they believe, if even for a second, that they're going to die. Well, now the emotional impact of it really hits home. And closely related to that concept is the concept of control. We we all want to believe that we have some control. If something bad happens, we can respond to it, prevent it. But the reality is we're not in control of the situations that we encounter. And how do we feel knowing that bad stuff can occur, that nothing we can do about it? vulnerable. So we get right back to vulnerability. Now, uh, the the DSM uh, defines three uh, categories of of symptoms for for PTSD. So there there are re-experience symptoms that include flashbacks, uh, nightmares or bad dreams, uh, intrusive and frightening uh, thoughts, and these re-experiencing symptoms 
may cause problems in a person's everyday routine. There can be some kind of external or internal reminder, and boom, up it comes. Right, right. There's a, okay. Uh, a second category is avoidance. So, uh, again, reminders of it, thoughts about it, feelings about it can be overwhelming. So a person may want to stay away from places, events, objects, uh, thoughts that, that are reminders. And the third category is has to do with physiological arousal and reactivity. So being easily startled, on, on edge, difficulty sleeping, uh, anger outbursts, but just a constant, uh, constantly aroused. And something I want to emphasize is that uh, there does not have to be a direct threat that that to cause PTSD, it can be something that we witness. So there can be that vicarious traumatization, something that we see. So the awful images of of, of uh, e- even from television, uh, the the war veteran who may not have uh, ever uh, experienced personal vulnerability, but sees terrible things, or just being in an environment where bad things can happen, can take its toll on the human psyche. So it doesn't have to be a specific event. Like even in the case of a vet, it doesn't have to be like even seeing, you know, a, a fellow vet killed. It could be, say, even just from a bad childhood. Like let's say you had parents that were extremely angry and yelling all the time. Um, can that cause PTSD? Well, now we get into... Uh, something that's very important. Let's let's broaden the definition of what trauma is. First of all, PTSD is a disorder that develops those who've experienced a shocking, scary, or dangerous event. And and in childhood, uh, where the abandonment, neglect, and even the seemingly small events can be traumatic. Seemingly small. For example, a uh, mother's angry look can be quite scary. The, uh, especially when we start getting into attachment theory, a child uh, wants safety. And when, when there's some kind of distress, let's say an infant or a child protest or, you know, or cries, and then the parent comes to do soothing. And when the soothing is not there or it's there intermittently or the child is criticized or punishment for having needs, then there can be anxiety, there can be emotional shutdown. Now, even though these are, these are uh, events that do not meet the criteria for the DSM-5 definition of PTSD, these uh, these events can still get frozen in the brain. Right. Hold on a second. And if I can if, elaborate on that, what, what I mean by that. I just want to tell our listeners, I have to remind them now and again, that if they're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to In Your Right Mind with Dr. Tanmoy Sharma, and we are defining PTSD with our guest, Dr. Roger Solomon, an expert in the areas of trauma and grief. Please go go ahead. All right. Uh, let's take a broader definition of what trauma is. 
All right, even trauma, let's say that it's beyond PTSD. So, uh, and here's where we get into uh, the adaptive information processing theory developed by Francine Shapiro, who's the originator of EMDR. But this also fits with current theory and knowledge that we have about neurofunctioning. So let's postulate that the brain has an information processing system hardwired in the brain that will take negative uh, information and integrate it. So, you know, for example, there can be a distressing event and we can think about it and talk about it, mull it over, uh, sleep on it, and it becomes integrated. Uh, it's something that happened, but it's not happening now, and it becomes a past event. Of course, we have the memory, uh, there's still the appropriate emotions we, we learn from it, and, and that informs our future behavior. So uh, this is why, uh, you know, for example, our war veterans, 80% uh, uh, come back with very significant, significant post-traumatic symptoms, but a year later, Depending on the study, it's maybe somewhere from 20% to one-third have significant symptoms. So most people recover. Right. Now, so you're saying as, as children, people that are under stress, can it can feel stressful and traumatic at the time, but then as they get older, they get over it? Well, some do. But uh, there's, there's something more to understand that... Um, these very stressful experiences can be overwhelming. So that memory gets frozen in the brain. It gets stuck in the brain, unable to integrate. So, Dr. Solomon, let me ask you a simple question here. You said that probably a third, well, you said almost 60 or 70%, I forget the figure, of vets that come back have got symptoms of PTSD, and then it becomes a much lower figure, almost 25% a year later. Is this with treatment or without treatment? Well, this is probably using everyday coping mechanisms. Okay, so no formal so, treat so, treatment. So a lot so, of people, when they've, uh, some people do get treatment, yeah. Some people may not get treatment. Okay. So it's not necessarily the natural epidemiology of the illness itself that some resolve by themselves? Or? Well, yes, it does. A, a lot of times it, it resolves on its own, yes. Okay, okay. So there will be but, a uh, at the same time, there's, yeah. you know, people can be resilient and they're using their coping mechanisms. They're talking about it. They're thinking about it. Right. Uh, when they have the feelings, uh, they're, they're allowing themselves to feel it, right. think about it, and work it through. Right. right. You know what? Let's go to a quick break, and then we will come back and discuss how trauma and post-traumatic stress disorders affect the brain with Dr. Roger Solomon and Dr. Tanmoy Sharma. You're listening to In Your Right Mind, brought to you by Sovereign Health. We'll be right back. Are you or a loved one struggling with an addiction as well as a mental health condition? At Sovereign Health, our clinicians target and treat substance use disorders and a variety of mental illnesses concurrently. We provide evidence-based dual diagnosis treatment services for adults and adolescents based on a clinician's customized rehabilitation plan. Call Sovereign Health's dual diagnosis program at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. Or visit us online at sovhealth.com. 
Are you concerned that your teen is showing signs of overeating or undereating? At Sovereign Health's Rancho San Diego Adolescent Facility, our clinicians provide thorough assessments and holistic evidence-based treatments for teenage girls who have eating disorders and co-occurring depression, substance abuse, and other mental health issues. Call Sovereign Health today at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. Or visit us online at sovhealth.com. Nearly half of all Americans experience one mental illness at some point in their lives. Sovereign Health offers treatment programs for a large spectrum of issues including depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and eating disorders. Call Sovereign Health's dual diagnosis program at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. Or visit us online at sovhealth.com. We're back with In Your Right Mind with Dr. Tanmoy Sharma. I'm Stephanie Wilder-Taylor, and we're discussing immediate and long-term responses to traumatic events and how trauma can lead to serious mental health conditions, including PTSD, with Dr. Roger Solomon, a psychologist and psychotherapist who specializes in the areas of trauma and grief. Dr. Solomon, two people exposed to the same event or incident, one of them develops PTSD, the other doesn't. Any thoughts and explanations? Yes, there's a lot of variables uh, pertaining to the event itself and pertaining uh, to one's psychological history. So first, let's take a look at psychological history. When there is a distressing event that's too much or overwhelming, that memory can get frozen in the brain. We say it's maladaptively stored in the brain. It's unable to process. Uh, It's stored the same way it came in, in agitated form. So these memories that are maladaptively stored can get triggered later on. So when there's some kind of a reminder, it triggers the memory networks holding this maladaptively stored information. Just give you an example. Let's say for uh, somebody makes a mistake and some people may go, oh, I made a mistake. I'm going to correct that. But people who you know have a history uh, of a, having to do with I'm not good enough, when they make a mistake, what gets triggered is that belief and the feelings and thoughts of I'm not good enough. So a person may have had experiences where they've come to the conclusion there's something wrong with me. I, I, I'm not good enough. And having these memories that are maladaptively stored in the brain, you know, uh, well, makes them vulnerable to future distressing situations. And of course, it's going to be the same way with trauma. If somebody uh, has a a traumatic incident, uh, it can start to trigger previous traumas, previous, previous losses. And that's what makes a person vulnerable to PTSD. So some people who have had aversive experiences but uh, have recovered from them and they experience uh, another one may actually have resilience. Mm -hmm. So working through distressing events can create psychological strength and and resilience. Sorry, what, what causes the resilience in the face of adversity in some people? Do they just have more reserve, so to speak? Well, certainly there's physiological factors. Right. 
that that come into play that that may be physiological and psychological hardiness, mm-hmm. but uh, also training is key. Uh, for example, with police officers, with, with soldiers, uh, they they have training. So when there is a traumatic event, they've been trained how to respond. There's not the helplessness. There's not the powerlessness. And they respond according to their training. And something else, of course, is going to be learning. So somebody has uh, – and, and here's where we can all have hope. Somebody has a traumatic event. Uh, event. There may have been a moment that was overwhelming. And, and that memory that had frozen in the brain, and they've had nightmares, they've had flashbacks, but then maybe they've had a supportive atmosphere of friends, they've had good psychotherapy, an effective psychotherapy that's resulted in the integration of that memory. So instead of being focused on, oh my goodness, I can die, maybe now they can think about it as I survived. Uh, I have the ability and capability to respond to a situation should it happen again. And that builds resilience. Does somebody need psychotherapy, though, to do that, to integrate that event? Well, again, there's a lot of different factors. A lot of times we don't know there's it's a trauma till after the event because so much of it depends on one's perception of what happened, the extent to which a person felt vulnerable. Or, or helpless. And of course, psychological history uh, relates to that. Now, if that memory gets frozen in the brain, it can become isolated and, and uh, a person may not be able to go there and be able to think about it. Right. And that's what makes them vulnerable. If they've had, but, and then many people have an event and again, are able to confront the emotional reality, cope with it, and work it through. Right. Just using their friends' support system and uh, using their own devices. Right. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to In Your Right Mind with Dr. Tanmoy Sharma, and we're discussing vulnerability to PTSD with our guest, Dr. Roger Solomon, an expert in the areas of trauma and grief. So, Dr. Solomon, it's almost as if it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it. Yes, how we respond to it, how we perceive it. That's true. Right. It's more important, uh, and even in the aftermath as well. Mm -hmm. It's maybe not so much important what happens to it, to us, as much as how we're going to deal with it. it. Does everybody who experiences an extremely traumatic event, like, does everybody have some form of PTSD? Or do some people well, experience a very uh, traumatic event and they're just fine? As some people have said, everybody has a breaking point. So, But the breaking point can have wide variability. Wide variability. So what about, you talked about traumatic memories. Some of these memories are explicit and some are implicit in PTSD? Mem- oh, yes. So the implicit memory, uh, okay, which is that memory can get frozen in the brain. The sights, the sounds, emotions, the sensations, the perceptions that we have at the time. And it's encoded in the brain in implicit, nonverbal form. So a trauma, for example, isn't told, it's relived. So what was experienced at the time can be triggered again and relived. That's what an implicit memory is. Now, 
with treat with time uh, and with treatment, now that memory becomes explicit. There's a verbal narrative to it. Now it's something that can be told without the emotional arousal. And as time goes it on, it goes from implicit to, to explicit. And as time goes on, one is able to de- uh, cope with it better, even without treatment. Is there a reason for it? You're getting more used to it, or you're forgetting parts of it? Well, uh, again, this is something that would certainly uh, be on a continuum. Uh-huh. So there's certainly going to be people, two-thirds of people, who go through a traumatic event, recover. Okay, depending on the study, but you know about two, you know about two thirds, mm-hmm. and uh, that's usually happens uh, with time mm-hmm. and uh, coping with it. But there is going to be that one third where that memory remains maladaptively stored, mm-hmm. and that can be because it was a particularly intense uh, uh, memory. Or it can be because it starts to trigger previous memories that are maladaptively stored. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of previous psychological vulnerability. Before so, we go to break, so, can we talk about disassociation? Yes. Dis- absolutely. Dissociation, not disassociation. Yeah, we can talk about dissociation. So, again, uh, let me explain it uh, hopefully in a way that everybody uh, can understand. So uh, the first thing I want to say, especially to people that may be out there experiencing or suffering from from, uh, dissociative disorder, dissociation is something to be understood and respected and not feared. All right. Now, everything within us is geared toward survival. Uh, as As a species, we want to survive. So when we go through an event that is too much overwhelming and think childhood abuse or neglect, okay, these, this experience, which an adult can cope with can be overwhelming to a child. A child can't survive without the presence and safety of the caretaker. All right. So there's a lot of attachment based trauma. Now, uh, so something negative happens, uh, that memory, as I explained before, can become maladaptively stored. Even before we're able to have language, these memories get, get maladaptively stored. And, and what happens is that we're able to, we focus on surviving. We, we focus on what we have to do for everyday living, and that memory that's too much gets split off, maladaptively stored. That's survival. Now, we don't want to think about it. We focus just on daily living. So if there's continual trauma, especially in childhood, it, it, it continues, then that memory network gets bigger and bigger. And as the trauma continues and is more severe, what happens is you know there's that split in the personality, the part of the personality engaging in everyday living, but then there's the part of the personality holding the memories, that memory network, and what can happen is that memory de- network develops an individual sense of self. 
You know what? So I'm gonna talking- I'm gonna stop you right there uh, with mm-hmm. with the individual sense of self. We have to take another break, and then we'll come okay. back and continue on this train of thought. You're listening to In Your Right Mind, brought to you by Sovereign Health. We're talking with Dr. Roger <clears throat> Solomon and Dr. Tanmay Sharma. We'll be right back. Are you tired of struggling with addiction? Sovereign Health's Prime program aims to help men over 40 transition from chemical dependency to a state of lasting recovery in an environment suited to their age and specific needs. Let us help you get your life back on track. It's never too late. Call Sovereign Health today at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. Or visit us online at sovhealth.com. Are you or a loved one experiencing bouts of emotional overeating or undereating? These can be symptoms of an eating disorder. At Sovereign Health, we believe that these brain diseases that strain people's lives should not define them. Call Sovereign Health today at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. Or visit us online at sovhealth.com. Find a better way to live a better life at Sovereign Health. Nearly half of all Americans experience at least one mental illness at some point in their lives. Sovereign Health offers a residential treatment program for a large spectrum of issues including depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and eating disorders. Call Sovereign Health today at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. Or visit us online at sovhealth.com. We are back with In Your Right Mind with Dr. Tanmoy Sharma. I'm Stephanie Wilder-Taylor, and we have been discussing how trauma can affect the brain with Roger Solomon, a psychologist and psychotherapist, and with me is Dr. Tanmoy Sharma. And you were just talking about the splitting that happens in with childhood abuse, where one part of your brain is in the survival mode, um, just trying to live every day. So continue explaining that to us, please. Yes, yeah, so childhood abuse and or neglect. What happens, again, is that we have to survive. So we have action systems that uh, for everyday living. So things like uh, self-care, exploration, which includes you know, work, play, socialization, attachment, and reproduction. Got to have children for survival of the species, and then the children come, and there's caregiving. And then we also have action systems for psychological defense, fight, flight, freeze, collapse, hypervigilance. Usually these action systems are operating in tandem, that uh, we're driving a car, all of a sudden we perceive an emergency. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're thinking we were able to hit the brakes. There's a lot of, a, there was a lot of fear at the time, but now that the situation is over, Uh, The person realizes, gee, I survived, it's over, and that experience integrates. Now, if there's continual trauma, what happens? It's it's, it's too much. So, again, that memory uh, can split off, and the memory includes the the images, thoughts, beliefs, uh, perceptions at the time, but the action system that was there, that fight, that flight, that freeze, and And so, and and the sense of self that was there at the time. And because it's too much, that memory splits off. And with continued trauma, that memory network gets bigger and that sense of self uh, also can get 
larger. So what we have is a splitting of the personality. So one part of the personality is engaging in everyday living. So right. you know, the things that we need to do for survival, but then we have parts of the personality, emotional parts of the personality that are holding that traumatic memory. And these emotional parts can be organized around the psychological defenses, fight, flight, freeze, collapse, and could be organized around age. So there could be a part that feels like a child, uh, a part that feels like an adolescent. Uh, there can be parts that are really vulnerable and young and parts that, are, that feel older and a protector part. So dissociation is that when there's uh, at least one part engaging in everyday living and one or more emotional parts that you know, are memory networks living in trauma time. And is this that, more that, common uh, with, with children who have experienced trauma or can you, can this happen? Can you be dissociative as an adult when, if some, if you start having bad experiences, uh, you know? Well, uh, as an adult, if there is severe trauma, severe torture, you know, for example, that, that yes, a dissociative disorder can develop. Usually what happens, and if I can just give the theory of my friend and colleague Giovanni Liotti, uh, who uh, lives in Italy, who's written ex and researched extensively on the subject. I guess that with the name what Giovanni. What he talks about, what underlies dissociation is when, uh, as a child, the source of protection, the source of safety, which is the parent, is also the source of terror. So the need for safety and attaching to the parent is activated at the same time the psychological defenses are activated. And this creates what's, what's called a disorganized attachment style. And uh, what Leoti talks about is, is that this is what uh, underlies later dissociative disorder. So is it a coping mechanism, so, though, in the sense of that you are blocking out the... Absolutely. You're exactly correct. And that this is a way that the mind is, uh, uh, is able to enable survival. Right. So essentially, we have to survive. And if there's something is too much, right. it gets associated. So we can continue to engage in everyday living. The problem is the memories right. don't integrate. Right. What about cognitive distortion and cognitive deficits that come as part and parcel of uh, you know, PTSD? Before you answer uh, that, I just want to remind everybody, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to In Your Right Mind with Dr. Tanmoy Sharma. We're discussing dissociative reactions and... Cognitive distortions. <laughs> uh, with our guest, Dr. Roger Solomon, who is an expert in areas of trauma and grief. Yeah. Please explain that, yeah. especially to me. Yeah, so when there is a trauma, there is a drop in integrative capacity. That's one thing that, again, our coping ability uh, does drop, and that, that can main, help maintain the dissociation. And yes, there are cognitive errors, cognitive distortions, uh, many different kinds. So first of all, let's understand that when, there, uh, when there's the kind of development I talked about, uh, a person has, can have a lot of fear, a lot of self-hate, disgust, 
and shame. As Arnold Vanderhart says, there's always shame. And so the cognitive distortion is it's all my fault. Uh, now, there's other ones that happens too, for, especially in dissociation. There can be a part of the personality that uh, believes that the trauma is still happening. So there can be a part that can feel like six years old, a part that has an identity of I'm six years old and the world is dangerous. So here's a part that doesn't know that in the year 2018, the danger is over and right. not happening anymore. So that would be an example of the cognitive dis distortion that can develop. Mm -hmm. Can you talk or, about the relationship between uh, borderline personality disorder and PTSD? Yes. The uh, Many people, including myself, believe borderline personality disorder should be on the trauma continuum. And um, borderline personality develops... Uh, out of uh, negative attachments relationships when growing up, when there's uh, a lot of criticism, uh, a lot of fear, neglect, and as a result of that, there's a lot of affect uh, dysregulation, and that, that occurs in all trauma disorders from PTSD and dissociation. And uh, the and impulse control, uh, but let's look at it again as attachment trauma. So it's not something that develops inside a person. It's something that develops as a result of the relationships between the child and the caregiver. Hmm. So uh, again, there can also be uh, different parts that can have a sense of self though the person may be more aware of these uh, different parts than someone with a dissociative disorder. Uh, and uh, again, treatment uh, involves being able to explore the attachment relationships, start to understand where uh, the interpersonal trauma occurred and, and start to process and integrate these memories. So do you think so, that... Again, uh, let's look at attach. Let's look at borderline personality, also the result of attachment trauma. Yeah. Let's let's just recap uh, a few yeah. symptoms of borderline. Sure. So uh, borderline personality disorder, uh, again, it's marked by an ongoing pattern of of varying moods. You know, the affect dysregulation. Uh, a negative self-image, uh, a negative behavior, which, which results in difficulty in relationships. Uh, and it could be difficulty in <clears throat> work as well because of poor impulse control. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so the symptoms uh, are, are the impulsive actions and the problems in relationships. For, for example, people that, again, it's, it's, it's a label. Uh, Again, it's attachment trauma, but these are people that experience intense episodes of anger and depression and anxiety, and it can last from a few hours 
two even a few days. So that that's one thing to understand. But uh, you know what's going on. Uh, there's mood swings, and there can be uncertainty about how they see themselves and their role in the world. So interest and values and relationships can change very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happens too with people with a, uh, this kind of a personality disorder, they can view things in extremes, black and white, good and bad. And it, the opinions can switch actually quite rapidly. So one moment you're my best friend and the next moment I hate you. You don't care for me. A person, a therapist who may be considered a good friend and uh, one day and an enemy the next. Uh, We need to take one more break and then we're going to get right back to this. And then let's talk about EMDR and its help in, in treatment of PTSD. You are listening to In Your Right Mind, hosted by me, Stephanie Wilder-Taylor, and Dr. Tanmoy Sharma, and tonight's guest is Dr. Roger Solomon. We'll be right back. Are you tired of struggling with addiction? Sovereign Health's Power Program utilizes evidence-based interventions tailored to women over 40 to help them develop tools necessary for lasting recovery. Power specializes in treating substance abuse disorders and other underlying mental health issues, including trauma, anxiety, and depression. Recover with power. Call Sovereign Health today at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801 or visit us online at sovhealth.com. At Sovereign Health, we understand that the Christian faith is an integral part of recovery. If you're suffering from an addiction or mental illness, let us help you heal with others who share your beliefs and values. Call Sovereign Health today at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. Or visit us online at sovhealth.com. Start your new life today. Sovereign Health's adolescent program offers treatment for males and females ages 12 to 17 struggling with addiction, mental health, and co-occurring conditions. Let us help you and your family heal in a safe, nurturing environment with an individualized treatment plan that has your loved one's treatment needs in mind. Call Sovereign Health today at 866-325-1801. That's 866-325-1801. 1801 or visit us online at sovhealth.com. We are back with In Your Right Mind with Dr. Tanmoy Sharma. I'm Stephanie Wilder Taylor, and we have been discussing traumatic stress and post traumatic stress disorder with Dr. Roger Solomon, a psychologist and psychotherapist who specializes in the areas of trauma and grief, and he's on the senior faculty of the EMDR Institute. Dr. Solomon, how do we treat PTSD? All right. Well, there's a lot of different interventions that can be appropriate. So first to take a very broad view, if somebody's coming in with very significant trauma, then what we're going to be doing is some kind of a stabilization and affect regulation. So there's a number of uh, methodologies for, uh, for this. And for example, mindfulness, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, neurological uh, feedback, uh, yoga, meditation, uh, a lot of relaxation methods. Uh, The the, EMDR, we use a safe place exercise. And then there comes a time uh, that a person is ready to start to integrate the memory. And there's a number of evidence-based 
methodologies, uh, and that includes EMDR Mm -hmm. and cognitive behavioral therapy uh, and cognitive processing therapy. And of course, what's going to be very important because the therapeutic relationship is always the vehicle with which treatment is uh, developed. Right. So speaking very broadly, these memories have to be integrated. Right. But treatment may not necessarily be over then because right. now that the traumas are integrated, the person is freed up to learn new coping skills. Sorry, what are the theoretical underpinnings of EMDR, you know, eye movement desensitization? Yeah, the theoretical framework that guides EMDR is called the Adaptive Information Processing Model. That's and this good. posits a... that uh, present problems including trauma, are the result of past memories that are maladaptively stored in the brain. And when these get triggered, that's what causes the current symptoms, the Mm -hmm. nightmares, the flashbacks, negative behavioral patterns, and, and the like. Therefore, what needs to happen is we need to process the past memories that are maladaptively stored, but also the present triggering situations just going through the past may not be enough because due to second-order conditioning, there can still be present triggering situations that elicit the symptoms. And then the future, we want to lay down an adaptive positive future template, a template for adaptive future behavior. So that, in a nutshell, is the the, the uh, underlying the, theoretical model the that guides EMDR therapy. And how does it happen? What what happens in EMDR? There are, when it comes to memory processing, mm-hmm. the first thing uh, what we need to do is uh, is access to memory. Uh, I should say that EMDR is an eight-phase treatment mm-hmm. that, one, we take a history and we, we evaluate the stabilization needs, what else a per, uh, coping skills a person may need to learn. Uh, okay, that's that's the history phase. Second phase is preparation, where we start doing stabilization methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is this can be a broad variety of methods because, uh, again, EMDR therapy is still therapy. And mm-hmm. so, again, we want to give the client what's needed. Now, the next phases have to do with processing the memory. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is access the memory as it's neurologically stored. So think about it, the image, what are the negative beliefs? What are the emotions? What are the sensations? Mm -hmm. So we activate the memory, how it's stored in the brain. Then through bilateral stimulation, most notably the eye movement, but it can also be taps, it could be sounds, but bilateral, back and forth eye movements, research has shown to be the most effective, is provided mm-hmm. in, in short sets. Mm-hmm. So the client is thinking of the memory, and then the therapist is applying the bilateral stimulation, and the client is instructed to let whatever happens happen. This starts a chain of associations. And in the model, what we look at or what we view it as is the adaptive information that is stored in the brain is able to link into the memory networks with the maladaptive information. And this allows integration to occur Mm -hmm. so that memory that has been isolated 
now becomes integrated within the wider memory network. If you're just uh, tuning in right now, I'm going to just remind our listeners, you're listening to In Your Right Mind with Dr. Tanmoy Sharma, and we are talking right now about EMDR with our guest, Dr. Roger Solomon. Would you use phase orientation? Phase-oriented uh, treatment. Treatment, yes. Yeah, now phase-oriented treatment and EMDR phases are very similar. So phase-oriented treatment, the first phase is stabilization, uh, which in EMDR is a preparation phase. So this is where the client, we get the client coping, affect uh, is, gets regulated. And then the second phase of phase-oriented treatment is memory work. So here's where EMDR would, would fit right in, where we process those maladaptively stored traumatic memories. Then the third phase of phase-oriented treatment is personality integration or reintegration. So now the person is able to learn new skills. They still have to work through the guilt, still have to grieve what was lost. They have to learn new skills, readapt to life, new relationships. And this is built in with EMDR, with the, the eight phases that we go through with laying down the future templates. The other thing with EMDR is its paradigm of resilience. What's maladaptively stored becomes adaptively stored. And a negative cognition like I'm, I'm not safe becomes I'm safe today, or I can't cope becomes I can cope. I'm not good enough becomes I am good enough. And now these memories that now become adaptively stored in the brain can guide future behavior. And that's what resilience is about. Can I ask a so question? The face can EMDR work? What if you don't have access to the memory at all? I'm a, I'm, what if it's a suppressed memory that's caused the PTSD? If it's a what memory? Suppre a suppressed. What if you can't? Suppressed. You, suppressed, well, yeah. Uh, there's not only suppressed memories uh, or dissociation, uh, but also pre-verbal memories. So what we would do is we would, there's a number of ways to, to approach this depending where the person is on the trauma continuum. So, for example, uh, we would start with uh, where what the person does remember. Now, a person's coming in for a reason. And so what's the problem? What's bringing you in here? And a person will talk about relationship problems. They'll talk about self-esteem problems, uh, or they'll talk about affect regulation problems. And then we start taking a history. We start to get an idea maybe of what was going on. And if a person does not have childhood memories, then this probably indicates that there may be some dissociation or uh, an avoidant attachment style because the person had to learn to shut down emotionally or that things happened that were too much. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the first thing we would need to do is really do a very careful assessment there. And so some of those memories and might start coming up. Well, that's, that's, that's right. And so if we're working, uh, it's, it's certainly not uncommon to start doing EMDR and then past memories start com coming on up. For example, you start with the auto accident uh, that happened six months ago that's causing nightmares and flashbacks, and then other memories of previous traumas or losses or disturbing events start to come on up automatically. So that's one example. 
but then there may be other people that because of dissociation, you know, there's complex trauma, complex PTSD here. So there's dissociation there because of the adverse childhood experiences or, or the neglect and, and, and an abuse, there's dissociation. So we want to do a careful assessment for dissociation because we can go in to start bringing up memories that can be too much for the client. Right. So there are going to be some clients that are ready to start doing memory processing and other clients may need more of a phase-oriented treatment, the stabilization, and then the memory work. Well, we are almost out of time, but it sounds like there's a lot of hope and yeah. treatment options for PTSD. Is that right, Dr. Sharma? Well, yes. Absolutely. And, and uh, more and more research is just uh, showing how effective uh, these therapies are. And I certainly want to say to people, if they're uh, experiencing the effects, uh, again, trauma, and that can be any negative memory. Mm -hmm. that is still lasting today, not just the big tsunamis and earthquakes, but the seemingly small memories that have quite an impact, like mother's angry look, mm -hmm. or I needed attention and it wasn't given. Right, These right. also become maladaptively stored as well. So I, yes, there's hope. Great, well, and great. And effective treatment. We probably need, as a nation, we, we need some cognitive restructuring. So on that note. Yeah, as a, as a country. Yeah. I want to thank everybody <laughs> so much for listening tonight. And thank you so much, Dr. Solomon. Is Do you have a website or is there somewhere we can find out more about your work? I do have a website, uh, rogermsolomon.com. Uh, just a little bit of information there. Not, not really a whole lot, but... Okay, great. Some information on that. And if you want to find out more about Dr. Solomon, we'll have a Q&A with him sure. on our website. And tune in next Sunday at 5 p.m. for an all-new episode of In Your Right Mind. And if you like what you hear, you can download this edition of the show as a podcast on iTunes or go to inyourrightmind.com to hear this show or previous broadcasts. We will see you next week. Good night.